listen, if in order to make the world a better place, you need to lose your son, let the world fucked up. Don't fix it because the price is too high. So because I know that, I try to tell people things that nobody told me before I lost my son. Every 15 minutes, someone is shut down in the United States. So probably someone was shut down while we were talking about this. Me or Patricia, we are not here to save Joaquin. We can't do that. It's not going to happen. I wish I could do that. We are here to save other kids. So, so the urgency of me to find a solution is not as urgent as the one from an actual dad or mom that still have their kids with them. You should be more concerned than me because I don't have my son anymore. Today we're in Parklands, Florida, reporting on the gun control movement that emerged after the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Today's episode is about how the movement used art to convey a powerful political message. Why are people driven to connect art to politics? And when does art become a powerful messenger? Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, the podcast telling stories about people changing the world. We tell stories like this one, and we also make Changemaker chats where we feature people who make change. This episode was written by Kate Wilde. We want to thank Cheryl McDonough and the documentary team at Parklands Rising for helping us to produce this series. Parklands Rising is an extraordinary film about these events, and we would encourage you all to see it. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Changemakers99 or Facebook at Changemakers Podcast. Art and politics, politics and art. The times they find each other are often in moments of crisis, where words are hard. Think Picasso's Guernica or Banksy's stencils. Some artists make one political statement in their career, like a tribute song or a fundraising concert. For other artists, every work they create is political. Manuel Oliver is without question a political artist. In the last year and a half, documentary maker Cheryl McDonough has filmed him making artworks across the United States. Every time that I witnessed him, uh, you see him put on his headphones and he gets into a zone. And I don't know what that emotional experience is for him, but I've seen him do it. He, he, he needs time to get into, you know, to, to tap into whatever is, is fueling his art. And having seen him 
create these pieces publicly numerous times, uh, it, it is, it's just kind of profound. With, you know, visual art, there is something where people feel something. People seem to understand his experience, understand his pain. Uh, the crowd watches in silence. I'm trying to send a message in a non-traditional way, and maybe that will work. Maybe that will make some people connect with what this tragedy means. Do I really need to explain you how high is this price? of not having your son in your house, of having an empty room? Are you willing to lose that just because you're defending a lobby that is making money selling weapons? No. No, no we're not. What happened to Manuel Oliver and his wife Patricia on the 14th of February 2018 is difficult to bear even as a witness. Their son Joaquin was one of 17 children fatally shot at a mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. I think I need to tell you this. I, I don't enjoy this part of the story. It's been a long time since I don't share these details, but, but I think that whatever Joaquin is right now, he, he needs people to understand and know very well what happened to him. And that day, I, I took my kid to school, all right? And usually I made two cups of coffee. That morning on February 14th, Valentine's Day, 2018, I also made two, two cups of coffee. And he said bye to his mother. Uh, he grabbed flowers that we bought the night before. So they were supposed to be for his girlfriend. And, um, and then we just got in the car and drank the coffee and we were listening to cool music, talking and enjoying that um, two mile ride from home to school. And then once we got to the school, he, um, he did told me, I love you, dad. And I, of course, said, I love you, son. Um, you take care. And, and I asked him before he left, to call me back at around 10, 10.30 um, a.m. so I will know the whole story behind the flowers. I wanted to know everything. And Joaquin and me, we, we share a lot of details of our lives. And he will call me every single day, several times. And, and that's it. That's the day, the last day that I saw my kid alive. Uh, I never got that call back. What happened to him after that, after that conversation with me, a few hours later, because we live in Florida and Florida is inside the United States and our society has a um, fever for the gun culture. It's like an addiction for guns. And, and a 19 year old kid, another kid, was able to purchase an AR-15 which is a military-style weapon made and manufactured um, in the best possible way to kill as much people as possible in the less amount of time 
that you could. 911, what is your emergency? Yes, I just got a call from Douglas High School. Um, a female on the line advised they believe there's a shooter at the school. Okay, at Douglas High School in what city? Yes, in Parkland. So this 19-year-old went to a to a gun shop. He bought this legally, and and he took it to school and he started shooting randomly. And Joaquin was in the second floor of this building, and he was outside of his classroom. There was a lot of panic uh, during those moments, and he got shot four times. Commands of all units on scene. The shooter is not down. The shooter is not down. I need you to make sure that you guys are secured behind vehicles. And and while I'm telling you this. There's only one thing that really bothers me. I don't know, and I will never know, if it was a slow death, if there's pain involved. I will never know that. So I hope that there is no pain. And uh, a few hours later, a lot of hours later, like this happened at 2.30. And then finally around 2 a.m., so that's kind of 12 hours later, we were told by the FBI and um, police and some other people that I don't even know who they are, and Joaquin was one of the 17 victims. And uh, the good news, if there is such a thing here, <clears throat> is that he was able to give the flowers. Oh. So he's careful. Before he knew what he would do, Manuel was absolutely sure, completely sure, that life for him was forever changed. So the next morning I quit my job and, and I uh, started to learn from the tragedy, uh, how do we approach this? I was not raised here. I was raised in South America, in Venezuela, in an environment where answers for something like that will be totally different than just this is it and we pass the page and this is okay. Most of the reactions that you see here is that we need to secure our kids. And some, a lot of um, people fight on that direction. If we had uh, bulletproof glasses in, in bulletproof windows in the school, maybe some of the victims will still be alive. If we had metal detectors in the school, maybe all of the victims will be alive. 
There were calls from authorities about defensive measures, even as students were fleeing from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School's gunmen. Joined on the phone now by Chief David Brown, the former chief of the Dallas uh, Police Department. We saw the response uh, immediately uh, from local law enforcement. Again, just as students have been trained how to deal with this, every community in the country now has emergency training for these school shootings that have become all too prevalent in our country. Yes, George. And uh, again, the, the, the students and the teachers are sheltering in place. But let's be reminded that many states passed laws that armed some of their teachers, and we need to really be aware as we're responding to this of who might be the active shooter and who might be a concealed carrier, someone who might be trying to help and arm themselves. A security response. The idea is that guns have a right to exist and we need to protect ourselves from them. You see it in active shooter drills that are run in almost every school and preschool in the country. It's a familiar routine to Cheryl. That certainly happened uh, where my girls go to school and all of the things that you hear about, you know, the active shooter drills, they've all three of them have grown up with that. Uh, They've all done the hide in the classroom, barricade the door, you know, be quiet, uh, get under a desk, you know, (laughs) all, all of those things. They've grown up with this and it's, it's, it's horrible. It's ridiculous. Manuel knew there must be another way to respond. So I decided that I was not going to fight in that direction because I think it's, it's a defensive way to, to accept that this is normal. And I, um, by, by doing those things, you assume that it will happen again. Manuel was not going to set up an ambulance at the bottom of a cliff. He wanted to stop the crisis of gun death from happening. But how would he do this? By accident, I discovered that art will be a tool. Manuel Oliver had been a creative director in an advertising agency, a businessman and a powerful public speaker. He could have used any of those skills to push for change. But something else emerged at an art gallery. By accident, again, we were in this gallery a couple of weeks after the events and they invited us us by meaning all the parents of the victims, to be part of an exhibition that will, um, will show photos of our loved ones. And when I got there, this is in, in Miami, mm-hmm. when I got there, I saw this amazing, beautiful wall right behind the counter of the gallery. So I told the lady, are you displaying something on that wall behind you? No. And then I asked, can I paint something on that wall? And of course, she said, yes, come on. This is a father of a kid that just was shot two weeks before. She thought maybe I was going to draw a a cute little heart or I don't know. And and that was my first um, experience of releasing that anger through art. And I painted... um, I I, I had an stencil of Joaquin's face and I wrote on the wall, we demand a change. And I started hitting the wall with a hammer. And there were some flowers in the gallery and I started placing the flowers in those holes that the hammer was leaving on the walls. And that's how it started.
What Manuel Oliver started that day was to begin an art movement that tried to change gun culture in the United States. But his work wasn't isolated or alone. He was in partnership with a political movement driven by his son's classmates, joined by hundreds of thousands of people from around the country. A crowd of half a million rallied in Washington, D.C. We want change! We want change! 96 people die every day from guns in our country. We say no more! Oliver's story is so tragic. We have to hope that it isn't the only way to a life committed to artistic politics. Parklands did motivate other artists to respond. One was documentary maker Cheryl McDonough. It was a weekday. I don't remember where I heard that news. I I remember watching TV. I remember being more horrified than usual because we have mass shootings in this country all the time. Uh, This this was worse than than the usual situation. But I I know what really uh, got my attention was what happened over the next few days it was the and and those the the kids the march for our lives kids started to um they they spoke out immediately they spoke out within 24 hours they were all over the news uh changing the conversation about guns and and that really was kind of that that was where it was more of a light bulb for me i've lived through many school shootings uh in my lifetime i've seen I've seen a lot of things happen and, and, a, and a complete lack of change, but I felt like they were on to something and I felt like this is genuinely the start of a, of a movement. I knew from the beginning I wanted to tell the story of a movement as it was happening. McDonough expected the media would only stay interested in the Parkland shooting for a few weeks. Well, because I've seen so many of these kinds of events in this country, felt like uh, the media is going to be all over it for a couple of weeks, and then this all goes away. And I don't want that to happen. I want to keep the voices of these kids alive because this is a real moment in history. But she was wrong about the level of interest in Parklands. This mass shooting was different because the teenagers at the high school and people like Manuel Oliver responded differently. They demanded change and they took action in new ways that worked. That first piece of art in the gallery where you're at, what you, you said it was cathartic for you. What else was it? There's two powerful moments that, that happened that, that day, that night. The small group of of kids from from Parkland that today they're known as not only the Parkland kids but March for Our Lives. They were there. They they wanted to come over. We connected immediately. And Emma Gonzalez was there. Was there? David Hogg was there. When I when I hit that wall with the hammer the first time, and it opened a hole, a perfect little round hole, just like a bullet will do. Some of these kids ran away from the room. That was powerful. And then I said, okay, this is, this is making people react. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get better at this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really 
work on this. The pain and anger Oliver expressed in his art is at one level very personal. It kept alive his connection with his son. So Joaquin was involved in the art. Joaquin was making a statement, and that's powerful. But of course, Manuel and Joaquin's art also worked at a political level. It reached out to a much wider audience. It tried to connect with people who haven't thought about how gun violence could affect them. The art was a device for channeling powerful emotions into political outcomes. Art is a form of communication, but it is a form that is so very different to traditional political tools like speeches and written words. Manuel's art provoked a range of contradictory emotions, love and fear, beauty and pain. From this emotional canvas, the viewer then moves from their heart to their head. And the thinking time, the contemplation, isn't momentary. It lingers. Severe art, like Guernica, and equally like Manuel's violently beautiful pieces, can stay with you a long time, sometimes forever. They can be fuel not only for new thinking, but they can lead to people acting differently in the world. So often the world of social change seeks to move people using only rational argument. We see this in everything from the American gun debate to discussion about climate science and climate change. And so often we see these rational arguments come up short. While evidence is profoundly important, it doesn't always convince a skeptic. It doesn't always change minds. This is where Manuel's work has been different. His art is a different, powerful, highly intentional way of connecting to others. Now there is a creative process. And, and one thing that is also part of them as of today is that there are always statements from Joaquin. Like, he has, he has the power now to make you change your mind. It's not me being an artist. That doesn't matter at all. It's Joaquin being an activist. And that is fucking great. Because you are turning a victim into an activist. And, and think about that. The difference in terms of things that you can, you can reach. It's tremendous. I mean... You can cry your victim and have a miserable life forever. Or you can turn your victim, your loved one, into an activist with your help, of course. You have license to do, to do what is necessary that other people sometimes are too scared to do in this situation, it feels like. Do you, do you feel like that's part of the power that you have in this moment to speak? One thing that I, that I don't get is how... Um, in, in America, in the United States, there's a lot of barriers when you want to be an activist. And, and believe it or not, some people ask for permission to do something uh, instead of doing it. Manuel's art is not only raw, it is gloriously bold. It's instructive to us all. You don't need permission to change the world. Not seeking permission is an enduring lesson of the March for Our Lives movement more broadly, started by Joaquim's classmates. Thank you. 
Every single person up here today, all these people should be at home grieving. But instead, we are up here, standing together, because if all our government and president can do is send thoughts and prayers, then it's time for victims to be the change that we need to see. Manuel's art and March for Our Lives are parallel campaigns, but they frequently converged and interconnected. This happened at the National Rifle Association's annual meeting in Dallas, months after the mass shooting. In the months between the mass shooting in Parklands in February 2018 and the NRA AGM, another 322 mass shootings had happened across the United States. The NRA was having their, their year... Um Whatever they do, they get together and they talk about guns. And they have the president of the nation there opening the ceremony. Uh, so we decided to go there. That was one event, and I was able to paint a mural outside, a block away from where they were having their meeting. One of the images that I used was Joaquin with a target around his, his, um, his silhouette. More political art actions were planned. The NRA were firmly in focus, and the next time, hundreds of March for Our Lives students took part. This time, the date was Joachim's birthday. It should have been his 18th birthday. We went to the NRA headquarters in Virginia, and, and we were right in front of the building. There was a few protesters, and there was actually maybe 40 protesters. And we were able to bring 1,500 kids right in front of the NRA. And I did another mural with Joaquin um, blowing his candles. Uh, I placed 18 candles. And then I hit... I, I started hitting them, and I left number 18 uh, without hitting. I didn't even touch that one, because that's never going to happen. March for Our Lives, by this time, was attacking gun laws on many fronts. The midterm elections in 2018 were set up as a referendum on Trump. March for Our Lives played a critical role in generating the highest ever turnout of young voters in those elections. A record 46 NRA-backed candidates lost their seats. As Delaney Tarr from March for Our Lives said on CBS at the time. We are here to call out every single politician. The pressure is on for every person in power and it will stay that way. Because they know what is coming. They know that if there is no assault weapons ban passed, then we will vote them out. Cheryl McDonough's documentary team was there filming everything, everywhere the group went. We filmed from about one week before the March for Our Lives, the, the big march in Washington, D.C., and actually all over the country. Um, and we filmed pretty much straight through until the midterm elections. At some point, um, somebody was saying, you know, you, you can't, you're not supposed to be an activist um, if you're making a documentary and you're sort of neutral, whatever. Um, but I, I do feel like this was the first time where I, I felt like this is personal. This is, this is truly life and death. It's my life. It's my kids' lives. 
there's no reason why it happened to them and it didn't happen to me. There's no reason why it was their teenagers and not my teenagers. So for me, their pain really just fuels me to do the work. McDonough's documentary, Parkland Rising, was part of the Sundance Film Festival in January 2020. In Connecticut, you know, I don't know if this is all over the country, but I have, uh, I've seen signs around town for uh, the Stop the Bleed campaign, um, which is, you know, trying to teach people and teachers how to use a tourniquet so you can stop the blood that's pouring out of a child's body quickly to maybe save some lives. That it's the, it's all around the school, stop the bleed, you know, because we can't figure out how to deal with the gun problem. So this is what we do. I I feel like that should, that should really bother more people. I'm sorry, what? Stop the bleed. (laughs) We need mass lessons in how to tourniquet shooting victims rather than instead um, reduce the number of military weapons in common usage. It feels like giving an aspirin to someone who's just had their leg amputated. For anyone outside America, you know, like me, this sounds frankly like the most awful, terrible, distracting piece of crap. But... When I step back for a second and reflect on it, I can think of other distractive fake solutions that pop up all over the place that mirror Stop the Bleed. It feels like politicians often resort to fake solutions where they say, look over here and do this so you don't take a deep look at the situation and see the house on fire. In Australia, we've been given a fake solution to a desperate crisis. As we recorded this episode, we were experiencing the worst bushfires ever recorded here or anywhere else in the world, ever. It's pretty bad. And our politicians have said we shouldn't talk about climate change and how burning coal causes it while fires are burning. They have said that we need to send thoughts and prayers. I kid you not. And there is a lesson here when it comes to art and politics. Political art works when it cuts through all of this fake solutions BS. The most remarkable political art calls a spade a shovel and says, we need something real here. That's what the students did. It's what Manuel did. It's what Cheryl did. Good political art cuts to the truth of the matter. It seeks out the cause of the problem and seeks honest action. For Manuel, the artistic journey has also involved a lot of learning along the way. Were there things that you started to learn about what made the art that you were doing or the sort of action that you were doing more powerful? Yes, that, that's where we are now. Um, my wife told me that in the very early stage of all this tragedy that we lost uh, fear and the feeling of risk. Last February, we did a mural in New York. Um, it's a four-story building. And we did this along with a, with a company that does these amazing, big, enormous um, graffitis. And, and we did it by parts. 
So we started two weeks in advance and, and we placed a cupid and then we placed some hearts under it. And, and everyone, there was a lot of traffic, walk, walking traffic in front of it. So everyone was trying to try to understand what was going to happen. What, what is it that we were going to uh, um, put on that mural? And then on the last day, February 14th, in the morning, we added an assault rifle on Cupid's hands. And, and we added, you stole my heart right under him. It was an amazing um, uh, um, 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 I mean, it was a surprise to everyone. Everybody thought that we were going to do some cheesy Valentine's, uh, happy Valentine's wall in New York. And we did it. We, 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 we did not go in that direction. We wanted to create an impact. And, and that creative process also was, uh, I, was, I was very proud of it. Confrontation has continued to be critical, whether through a mural or now when trying new artistic forms. So we have a play, a one-man show. It's called Wack, My Son, My Hero, which is another way of using art to spread the message. It's a roller coaster of emotions. There's dialogue between me and my son. It's me on stage for, for one hour and 30 minutes. At the very beginning of this interview, when you asked me about the journey and the process, this is exactly what learning means. And everything that we do is somehow related to the power of art. But confrontational truth-telling isn't easy. Have people attacked you for what you're doing? Yeah, every day. That happens um, a lot because... um, I, I get it. I mean, they don't like what we're doing. The NRA has a YouTube channel. Its hosts have attempted to undermine the impact Manuel Oliver and his son's classmates are making on gun control. It broadcasts clips like this. Folks, welcome to the program. The socialists that have taken over the Democratic Party are using the murder of 17 children to push an unconstitutional agenda. Instead of implementing actual solutions that harden our schools, instead of working to find ways to keep kids safe, they are using them, hiding behind them, all the while planning a nationwide march that ultimately has one goal, to disarm free and law-abiding citizens. But the attacks and pressure don't dissuade Manuel. The stakes are too high. I think that um, people should get involved before these happens. There is also opposition from politicians. And because their voices are more mainstream, in some ways their attacks are more problematic. Republican Senator Mark Rubio from Florida said this the day after the Parkland shooting. It isn't fair or right to create this impression that somehow this attack happened yesterday because there's some law out there that we could have passed to prevent it. For there was such a law that could have prevented yesterday, I think a lot of people would have supported it. March for Our Lives isn't just about traditional protests, memes and events. It has also experimented with how art can create a strong political voice. Many of the March for Our Lives students were into art, designers, into theatre and film. For Manuel, art offered a space for expressing his grief and finding a voice for change. No one's going to stop this 
new generation that is emerging, uh, the Portland kids. That's a way to describe these. The Portland, the Portland kids are everywhere, all around the nation. But it's not there are only the Portland kids. Kids from New York, in LA, in Chicago. They're, there's they're represented everywhere. These kids are not only organized, but they are they know exactly what they want from from their country, and and they will get it. They will get it. Imagine these kids uh, 40 years ago demanding changes to the tobacco industry. Nobody will listen to them. But today we all demand the tobacco industry to do things. So what we're doing is just thinking ahead, like doing things that we all know that will happen at some point. And, and every time I feel frustrated, maybe because someone sends me an email and a thread, and I think about that. Nothing that they can say is going to change this from happening. Not because I will do it. No, it's because the kids, that new generation, is going to make sure that it happens. And then even right now, while I'm telling you this, it gives me yeah, like a fresh air. Like, yeah. It's like fighting for something that you know you will win. Changemakers hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. This is Series 4, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating. This series is written by Kate Wilde, Amanda Tattersall, with Charles Firth as script editor. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerup. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Organising Cities Project, funded by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories.